our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now join me by taking your copy of God's Word and turning in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, today beginning to read in verse 36, picking up after the accounts of Jesus' appearance to the disciples, uh, after the Emmaus Road experience, where now they are back in Jerusalem talking among themselves, talking among the eleven who are gathered there and many other disciples besides, and the Lord comes and appears even in their midst. Today we're going to read Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36, and then on to verse 49. And as you can tell, we are coming to the end of our several-year study in Luke, and I'm starting to get a few questions from the congregation. Hey, what comes next? Uh, more than one person has asked, are we just going to keep uh, going on into Acts? And the answer is no. We, we are not uh, going to spend another few more years in Acts. Uh, so just to give you a forecast of where we're going, Lord willing, next week we'll be back in Harvey Wheeler in the morning, and we will look at the final passage in Luke's Gospel, which is a short one, but will give us an opportunity uh, to take a, a, a retrospective look at all that we've covered, sort of a, a, a view back on uh, the last several years together in Luke's Gospel. And then we're going to have a one-week break as we have a missionary visit Stephen Atkinson, the director of Christian Witness to Israel, who's been with us several times before, uh, Lord willing, is going to be with us on the 12th of September, and we'll hear him during Sunday school and also during our worship together. And then the week after that, Pastor Andrew is going to begin our series through Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Uh, so you can begin reading that. Uh, it seems apropos. We live in a culture where so many things are vying for our attention and clamoring to, uh, to be taken seriously, and most of those things that are vying for our attention are all so much vanity. Uh, and that's the message of Ecclesiastes, that what we really need in this world full of vanities is, is to fear the Lord uh, and to enjoy the life that he has given us under the sun with him. And so that's what we're going to be doing for uh, as long as it takes to get through, not, not as long as Luke, uh, a shorter series certainly, but Ecclesiastes is the next thing on the horizon. So today we're in Luke chapter 24, and before we read together, beginning in verse 36, please join me again in a word of prayer. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for this word and we pray that just as you have done for your apostles and just as we will read, so also you will do the work of opening our minds to understand the scriptures. We pray that you would help us to believe your gospel, that you would send us out as your witnesses into the world. We ask that you would do it for your glory and for your namesake, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 24, beginning to read in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. 
But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, when my children were, uh, were even younger than they are now, I began that annoying habit uh, that dads often develop of scaring them at any chance I got. Uh, startling probably is a better word, a softer way to put it. I, I would hear them toddling along, and just in time I would hide myself around the corner waiting for them to come, and I'd jump out and I'd, I'd watch their little eyes go wide and their little hearts skip a beat. I don't know why I did it, but it's a, it's a dad thing to do, and I, and I did it. Uh, but you know how it goes. The things that you have done to your children, they learn to do to you. The things that you have done to your children, they learn to do to your wife. Uh, and so more often than not, it seems that when we send the children upstairs for bedtime, one of them will rush in and hide on the other side of the mattress waiting for an unsuspecting parent to walk in, and they pounce. Uh, and it happens so often that it, uh, I pretty much expect it, but they still sometimes get me. And that seems to be what's going on here in Luke's Gospel. As we've been going through this 24th chapter in Luke, it seems we get the sense that the disciples are just on the verge of real faith in the resurrection, finally. Well, the description has gone at the beginning of the chapter from outright disbelief when the women return from the tomb to, uh, to burning hearts on the road to Emmaus and then to the declaration in verse 34 that the Lord has risen indeed. It feels like any moment they wouldn't be surprised if Jesus showed up and if he was talking with them and if he was standing with them, if he was reassuring them with the gospel. And yet even though they almost expect it, they're all caught off guard when he actually appears. Whatever it was that they thought they were ready for, whatever they thought they were willing to believe, they found out that the gospel is far more wonderful than they could have imagined. It's far more real than they expected. Maybe this afternoon it'd be good if you were startled into seeing the Savior that you thought you expected all over again. When Jesus appeared to his 
uh, apostles, his disciples gathered together on the first Easter night. He didn't show up just to get a reaction out of them the way that I do when I scare my children. No, he, he showed up not to get something from them, but to give something to them. He showed up to give them the proof that they needed. In other words, he showed up to make the gospel believable. This is our first point, that Jesus appeared to make the gospel believable. Now Luke says it happens while these two Emmaus disciples are still uh, breathlessly relating the experience they had on the road, the way that Jesus was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 33 said uh, that after Jesus was revealed to them, after he vanished from their eyes, they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And the seven-mile trip back to the city was probably at a faster pace than the seven miles away from the city when they were so sad and, and downcast. Now they're gathered together, and before they have time to relate it all, while the words are probably still on their lips, the excitement is still in their heart. Verse 36 picks up, says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace to you. It is a subtle indication of the direction that the conversation is about to go. The resurrected Savior shows up with his apostles, his disciples, and he comes proclaiming a message of peace. It's true that it's the normal mundane greeting of the culture. Right? Even today, uh, Muslims greet one another by saying salam, and, uh, and Germans offer a guten tag, and even though we don't expect an answer, at least an honest answer, Americans still say, how you doing? Right? And there's a sense in which peace to you is the normal, mundane, sort of subconscious, rolls-off-your-tongue kind of normal answer. But I have a really hard time imagining that Jesus is doing nothing more than offering some small talk here. In, uh, in Eric Metaxas's biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, he describes Dietrich's father, Carl, early in the book. And, and he says that Carl Bonhoeffer was a genuine man. He was thoughtful, he was sincere, and then as a measure, almost as evidence of his sincerity, he says that, that what really set Karl Bonhoeffer apart was that he refused ever to speak to anyone in catchwords or cliches. Dietrich's sister Sabine wrote that their father had too firm a grip on his own emotions to allow himself ever to speak a word to us which was not wholly suitable. Should we expect any less from Jesus Christ? Here in, in resurrection glory, here gathered together with these disciples who all of them had failed to keep their promise to follow him to the death. And he shows up in their midst. He comes declaring peace. There's nothing to fear. All is well. All is accomplished. He is not here to berate them. He's here to reassure them. He's here to give them the proof of what their eyes were just beginning to see and what their hearts were just beginning to believe. But even when he appeared, the disciples were not ready for what he saw. For what they saw, excuse me. This is, uh, this is almost certainly the same appearance that John records in his gospel in chapter 20, verse 19. Uh, and there in chapter 20 of John, he says that uh, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. 
Well, notice what he doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us that Jesus walked through the walls, though some pastors will tell you that. He doesn't say that Jesus mysteriously unlocked the doors somehow. He doesn't tell us how it happened. He simply says that it did. That Jesus appeared. He stood among them. Maybe he, he stepped out of that unseen heavenly realm that always surrounds us and into the realm, into the dimension of, of material sensation. I don't know how it happened, but it did. And Jesus appeared, and it's his prerogative to do so because he's the resurrected Lord and ruler of creation. And he can enter into creation. He can go out of creation however and whenever he wants. And when he did enter in, in the presence of the disciples, their knees began knocking because normal people don't do that sort of thing. Well, they were frightened. Leon Morris says that their fear was the natural reaction to the supernatural. You see it in Scripture, angels appear and grown men fall on their faces. The angel of the Lord ascends in the smoke of, of the sacrifice and the parents of Samson, Manoah and his wife, they hit the deck. Jesus stands among them and the apostles are terrified but he's there in gentleness. And he says to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See, he says, touch. It is I myself. You know, on Good Friday, all of the disciples' hopes for a messianic kingdom died a humiliating and gruesome death on a Roman cross. But Jesus is here telling them now that hope is alive. Hope is as real as flesh and bone. Muscles and, and sinew, ribs and knuckles. Hope is alive, not in spite of the death that Jesus died on Friday, but hope is alive because of the death that Jesus died on Friday. It's why he directs their attention to his hands and to his feet. Luke is being delicate, and that's the way that he, he treats the crucifixion and all of the gruesome details that go with it. Luke is pretty delicate, but the reason for the hands and the feet is that that is where the nail marks were. The nail marks that Thomas so desperately wanted to see in order to believe there was the evidence that this was not just some smooth-talking doppelganger who had shown up uh, and was trying to deceive them all. This is the same Christ who suffered. The same Christ who died. This is the same Savior who was raised again, who now proclaims the peace of forgiveness and reconciliation with the Father. And as proof of it all, he offers the remnants of his atoning death for sinners. You should consider the significance of that for a moment. Christ is raised in, in resurrection glory. Wonderful perfection. The perishable has put on the imperishable. The mortal has put on immortality. And yet the nail marks are still there. They're still visible. They might be different. They're probably not bleeding. They're certainly not painful. But they're seeable. They're visible. And here, if you ever needed it, here's permission for you to disagree with John Calvin. 
Calvin didn't believe, he, he wouldn't have sung the song that we sang today. Hail him, the Lord of love. Behold his hands, his side, rich wounds yet visible above. In beauty glorified. Calvin would not have sung with us this afternoon. He believed that though the nail marks were visible there just shortly after Easter, that they, they disappeared with time and with greater glory. He wrote of this passage, he says, It's a foolish and an old wife's dream to imagine that he will still continue to bear the marks of the wounds when he shall come to judge the world. But is it really so foolish? Is it really so foolish to imagine that the resurrection is somehow more glorious because of the nail marks rather than less? In John's revelation, he said that he saw the lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's who Jesus is. He says that he saw the elders, the living creatures, fall down on their faces and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What is the glory of the resurrection other than the fact that though he died, yet he lives? That though he was slain, yet he was raised. That though he was condemned, yet he was vindicated. And now in vindication and resurrection glory, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he always lives to make intercession for the saints by the blood that still speaks a better word than Abel's. Now his crucifixion is not something that's going to be forgotten with time and with greater glory. And so he said to them, touch me and see. He said, put your hands and put your eyes on my flesh and my bones. He's not a disembodied spirit. He's a resurrected savior. And it says that when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He showed them those glorious wounds that won our salvation. And while they still disbelieved for joy, while they were marveling, Jesus ate a meal of, frit, of fish right in front of them. Don't try to answer the questions, right? Don't, don't try to work out in your mind, how did that happen? And, and how did that go? The, the point is not uh, the question of whether or not Jesus' resurrected body needs to eat. The point is that Jesus' resurrection body can eat. Right? He's, he's got a mouth and he's got teeth just the same as you've got a mouth and teeth. And he ate the fish as one more kindness to disciples who were still limping along in their, their, their weak unbelief. Jesus appeared and he gave proof of the gospel. He appeared to make the gospel believable. And it's a reassuring reminder that Jesus wants his people to be convinced of the resurrection. Have you ever wondered what Jesus thinks about your doubts? Have you wondered what Jesus thinks about your intellectual hang-ups or about the way that we all sometimes seem to limp along like the apostles and the disciples where one minute it feels like we're growing in our faith and the next we're stumbling all over these doctrines that we proclaim, profess that we believe a hundred times over. Have you ever wondered what Jesus thinks about that? Is he just waiting to, to wag his finger in your face and say, 
grow up already. Why don't you just fake it until you make it like everybody else does? Is that what Jesus thinks? Or does he lead you gently? Does he give you his word and spirit to to nurture you, to cause you to re-examine what you believe, why you believe it, so that you'll grow stronger in faith each time he resolves those uncertainties that will inevitably arise in your life. Another pastor said that in this passage, Jesus takes his disciples' doubts out into the open and he deals with them. That's what he's doing. He does the same for us. He appeared as as proof. He came to make the gospel believable. He also came to make the gospel understandable. Here's our second point. Jesus appeared to make the gospel understandable. Now, two weeks ago, I told you this was a theme that Luke was going to develop in this last chapter of his gospel, and we have seen it. That every time the uh, disciples are are unsure of what's going on, when they're stumbling over the the resurrection, whether it's at the tomb, whether it's on the road, whether it's here in the room together, Jesus points them back to the certainty of what he said and back to the certainty of what the scriptures have to say. That same pattern is, is repeated here, though this time Jesus mentions, he says, everything written about him in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, all of it must be fulfilled, and that, that threefold division is pretty important. Uh, that encompasses all three major divisions of the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, in other words, the law, the prophets, and the writings, all of it is encompassed in these three divisions. And the point is that just as Jesus doesn't want his his disciples to believe in an unexamined gospel, neither does he want them to believe in a disconnected gospel. He doesn't want them clinging to, to some good news that seems out of step with what they know God has been doing since the foundations of the world, all of his interactions with humanity. He wants them to be able to connect the dots and say, this is what God is about. This is what God has always been about. This connection problem, this is why some of the apostles had an issue with Jesus' agenda for the kingdom of God. This is why Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ and then immediately said, no, 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 Lord, you will not lay down your life as a ransom for many. That won't happen to you. Because the way that the Jews read the scriptures, they turned and saw an essentially triumphalistic view of what God was going to do in the world. According to their reading of the Old Testament, Messiah cannot die. According to their reading of the Old Testament, Messiah cannot be conquered. But now on the other side of Easter, it is imperative that the apostles understand that the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the saving miracle. The saving miracle that all scripture up to that point had been looking to. This is where forgiveness is to be found. This is how God the Father can pour out his Holy Spirit upon all of his people. This is how the God of covenant steadfast love will keep all the promises that he's made since the days of the patriarchs and the prophets. All of it hinged on the glorified, resurrected flesh and bone of Jesus of Nazareth. And what these men needed to make sure was the connection between the Bible they had always been reading and the Savior who was standing in front of their eyes. 
And so Luke says that Jesus opened their minds. And that's the missing piece. Twice before in Luke's gospel, he's told us of other times where the truth was right in front of them. Jesus was declaring it to them in in plain hearing, and yet their minds were not open. Luke chapter 18, beginning to read in verse 31. Taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And the same thing, we're told, happened back in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel. And that means that when Jesus appeared for this sermon on Easter evening, this was not the first time that these men were hearing this material. Although it was the first time that they understood it. It was the first time that it did any spiritual good for them. Howard Hendricks tells the story of an early sermon that he preached when he was a guest preacher in a a small church out in the middle of nowhere, West Texas. He said that uh, after he was done, when the service was over, one tall Texan came up to him and said, you're wrong. (laughs) Okay, uh, what was I wrong about, he asked. And and the man told him, uh, he said, in your sermon, you made a moronic statement. You said that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, and that ain't true because you can feed him salt. And all all the water in all the world isn't going to do you much good unless you're thirsty enough to drink it. And all the scriptures and all the Old and the New Testaments aren't going to do you much spiritual good until Christ opens your mind to understand them, until he gives you the salt of the gospel to make you drink those rivers of living water that will never leave you thirsty again. And so it's what Jesus did for the apostles after the resurrection. It's what he still does for us. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians the the second time, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he, he says that down to his own day, his fellow Jews, when they opened the Torah and the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, and when they read the word of God, there was a a veil of misunderstanding that still lay over their hearts. A veil of hardness, a a veil of, of inability to understand what was really there. But, he says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In other words, Christ himself is, is able to open our minds to the message of the scriptures. He is able to deal with our doubts internally. He is able to interpret the prophecy of the gospel with effectiveness and with conviction. It's why we pray that short prayer every week before we read the sermon text. Because without Christ opening our eyes, I am at best a semi-trained, semi-motivational speaker with a few interesting anecdotes. And that's not what you need. You don't need three alliterative points that you can remember clearly. You don't need my little illustrations and my tidbits. You need the Word of God written on your heart. You need the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified 
You need the message of Him resurrected and seated at the right hand of God where He gives you forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with the Father. And when we turn to the Lord, He's able to open our minds to His Scriptures. He's able to make us thirsty to receive His Word. And so Jesus appeared to make the gospel believable. And Jesus appeared to make the gospel understandable. And here's the one that my autocorrect didn't like. Jesus appeared to make the gospel proclaimable. He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Verse 47, and... Thus it is also written, by the way, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. On the minds of the disciples, this is something new. Even in the, uh, the passage of this chapter, when, when the angels appeared at the tomb, they reminded what Jesus had said would happen to himself. When Jesus walked on the Emmaus Road, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. But in verse 47, the focus shifts. No longer is Jesus talking about himself, but now he's talking about them. He's speaking about the church. Now he's talking about them because they're the witnesses who are going to carry this message from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And, and this is Luke's version of a great commission like we find at the end of Matthew's gospel. And in fact, each of the four New Testament gospels end with, with some sort of missional mandate for the church to, to take the gospel and to go out into the world and to make disciples. And it's a way of grounding us when we come to the end of the story of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's a way of keeping us centered on what the church ought to be about. You know, there are all kinds of things that the church can be about. There are lots of programs. There are charities. There are political causes that we could throw ourselves into headlong. There are ideals and there are isms and there are issues that that confront us with, uh, with, with the way that we live in our nation and our culture and our way of interacting with the world. And with all of that before us, what is it that the church ought to be busy with? The church ought to be busy with proclaiming the gospel. That's the answer from the gospels. That puts our finger on the greatest need of the human condition, the need for reconciliation to God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the mission of the church to proclaim the gospel. And probably by this point in the discussion where Jesus has already opened their minds, you imagine maybe that, that the disciples are starting to get it. Now it's coming home for them. Jesus has dealt with their doubts. They've seen him with their own eyes. They've touched him with their own hands. Their minds are open to understand the scriptures. And Jesus is giving them this commission to carry the gospel to all people. You can almost hear this rising crescendo among the apostles. And the crescendo, the, the resounding note, is this note of witness. Right? They are his witnesses. In the midst of a, a crooked generation, they are his witnesses among people perishing in their sin. They're his witnesses who have seen what all the prophets longed to see and did not see. 
what the angels rejoice to witness from afar, but not for themselves. This crescendo is rising, and their hearts are pounding, and they can't wait to find somebody, anybody, to grab and share the good news with. And that's when Jesus says, hold on. Just wait. Just be patient. Somebody says, what do you mean, wait? <laughs> we got it. Right? We, we understand it now. We believe it now. We've got all the evidence that, that we were supposed to have. You've unlocked this code of the scriptures. What do you mean, wait? We, we're ready to go. What else could we need? And Jesus says, not yet. Wait for the promise of my Father. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Obviously, Jesus means the Holy Spirit that's going to be poured out about 50 days from now on the, on the Sunday of Pentecost. And it's a warning to them, I think. It's a warning to all of us that, that merely getting it isn't enough for the spread of the gospel. To every tribe and tongue and, and nation on earth, merely getting it is not what we need. The spread of the gospel is a matter of spiritual awakening. It's a matter of new birth from heaven and, and not from the labors of men. The gospel only ever faithfully goes out and the gospel only ever faithfully gets received when the power of God is working to open lips as well as hearts. And if we attempt it in our own strength, we're attempting the impossible. And so Jesus told them to wait. Now we know from Luke's second book how powerfully the Holy Spirit came, and, and that book shows us the chronicle of the Holy Spirit's work among the church, what Luke says is uh, the continuing work of, of the Spirit of Jesus. We know that in the second book we find men who, who formerly cowered, uh, locked in a room for fear of the Jews, and we find them standing in the temple precincts declaring a salvation that can only come through the man Jesus Christ. It gives us that story of the work of the Spirit of Christ through His witnesses to bring the gospel to the nations, and that work continues down to this day through the witnesses that have believed and speak repentance and forgiveness in Christ's name. That's why every week we gather to proclaim the gospel here and we gather to pray for the gospel abroad. That's why every week we, we send our money. It's why over the years we have sent our members with prayer for the Spirit's work through their work. Because we believe that the Lord is calling the church to a global mission and because we believe that Christ still empowers His church to fulfill that mission. It's also why we need to pray and seek the Spirit of God to make us witnesses in the places that He sends us every day. Could you imagine, perhaps, having a, a conversation with the apostles? You're somehow transported back in time, across the ages, across the miles, and you, you sit there with the eleven, and can you imagine the, the conversation if you told them where you live, and who you work with, and and who your neighbors are. Massachusetts, is that somewhere near Tarshish? <laughs> no. Uh, no, you, you would have to keep sailing like for months beyond Tarshish to get where we are. It's wicked far out there. 
right? We're, we're all the way over there in this different place. And, and my neighbors, well, some of them are from here, but originally they're from, they're from England and, and Germany. They're, uh, they're from India. They're from Cambodia. They're from Cameroon. And they're from Nigeria. And they might look at you with those wide eyes and say, that's incredible. You, you mean to tell me that you live uh, in the ends of the earth? That's the goal. That's where we've been trying to get to. You mean to tell me that you live in a place where the nations have come to you? <laughs> That's amazing. How, how's the gospel work doing there in Massachusetts? What are the kinds of conversations you're having with all of these people around you? Conversations. Um, let's see. Uh, well, there's, there's soccer practice for the kids. We talk about that, yeah, and uh, well, well, some of my neighbors, they like to talk about climate change, but I, I just changed the subject, and then there's been this whole weird, like, global pandemic thing, and we spend an awful lot of time disagreeing on what our government should or should have been doing about it, and there's this great new show on Netflix. How do you think the rest of that conversation goes? I think it goes an awful lot like the conversation that Paul had when he arrived in Ephesus and he found some disciples who were already there and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Except we have, haven't we? We know that, that the Holy Spirit is active and and empowering his, his church. And, and we get it that anyone who has understood the scriptures, anybody who has believed the word of the gospel has been clothed with power from on high because Paul tells us in Romans 8 verse 9 that anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So Christian, if you belong to him, has, has Christ made the gospel believable for you? Has he made the scriptures understandable to you. If he has, he's also making the message proclaimable by you. Right where you are, right in the center of the nations, surrounded by people from every tribe and tongue and nation, even people who look and speak just like you do. So what's the application here? Is it to hang our heads and say, oh, we've We've been sinfully negligent. No, Christ didn't come to berate his people. He came to reassure his people. To give them what they needed to deal with their doubts and to send them out into the world. So Christian, clothed by the Holy Spirit from on high, let's go out. In power, in prayer, in, in proclamation, let's be Christ's witnesses in the world where he's placed us. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you for the promise of your gospel. We thank you for the word of Christ. We pray that you would give us open minds to understand it and open hearts to believe it and open mouths to speak it. Help us to proclaim your word in the watching world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.